Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. So welcome back to another episode. Ariana, tell us, now that we're in the new year, what is some new updates? How was winter break? What did you do? Yeah, Patricia, thank you for that great introduction. Um, happy New Year. Uh, what can I say? I mean, I, uh, it's, it's per usual. Every day seems like a week and every week seems like a month. You know, it just feels so long, um, especially with the current events, with the outgoing um occupant of the White House, you know, what happened on January 6th, and then with the election, um, it was just a matter of, the you know, counting down days, basically, to get that person out of there. And um, yeah, winter break was great. Um, I heard back from my job, I believe I mentioned that last time from, you know, I got a new job offer. And I, ex- I waited, you know, winter break to, to think about it, consider my options. And then in the new year, I got back to them, accepted the offer. And yeah, basically enjoyed my last two weeks of not working in a, in a role to like decompress and relax and just enjoy the new year. Just based on everything that's going on, it was just like, let me just have some self-care and um, make the most of every day. But um, yeah, so I'll be working at UC Davis and um, so far so good. I mean, basically it's just onboarding and I went to campus last week to pick up my laptop and all the good things. Um, With regards to PhD programs, I had an interview this past Monday to, um, with USC, which is great. I, I really like the professor I interviewed with. Uh, she seems really cool. Um, really like aware of the structural barriers that higher education creates for underrepresented students and uh, first gen and all of those, you know, she calls them my minoritized groups. Um, and the more I looked into her work, the more I was excited about her. Um, I've been like recommending this book. I finally got it. Um, Inside Graduate Admissions, Merit, Diversity and Faculty Gatekeeping. So I think um, I had a great conversation based on the fact that she understands that I don't have, a, don't come from a privileged background in the sense of having, you know, parents who have gone through the system. And uh, something that I noted to her was that or when she asked me, why are you interested in, in a PhD program? And I said, you know, it's been four years that I've been applying to PhD programs. And this is the first time that I've gotten an, inter- an interview. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she's like, what? Like, she was surprised. Like, that really kind of made her be surprised. And she, she's like, well, I'm surprised because this is, you have such a really, you have a strong CV. 
And I'm like, yeah, because that's, I've been, you know, making progress every year that I get denied, you know, trying to do the most so that I can be even considered. Um, so I don't know how that'll, what, what will happen, but I feel like um, that'll be memorable for her. And hopefully she'll consider that when she's selecting students. Um, and I have another interview coming up with UC Riverside. So we'll see. Um, but yeah, it's really exciting when you kind of are on the, what is it, Padi, you said it was like three-fourths out of the way or through the process. Um, so yeah, like I said, it's, a, it's um, I feel like good things are happening and I'm really enjoying this, this time. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of an update on that, on that aspect and um, get used to working uh, remotely for the next few months and, and yeah, so healthy, I'm still healthy, still safe, still <laughs> taking those COVID tests. So for anyone listening, if you haven't taken it, I encourage you to, it's better to, you know, know where you stand after a few months, oh, after what, nine, 10 months of being in uh, stay at home. Um, and so, yeah, so um, that's, that's a little bit about me. How are you, Patti? Good. I think I wanted to respond to like what you've mentioned. I think I wanted to take some time to just give some appreciation for like sharing Ariana, all your journey, just because I think I like it, it's, it's an example of what we should be doing. You know, the fact that you've been, you know, coming into the podcast time and time again, talking about your journey, trying to get into a PhD, like this is reality for a lot of us who are first gen students who come from many, many minoritized different identities and, and, and walks of life and your own specific journey too, as like we have started, you know, we didn't come thinking from the time that we were in kinder to, you know, when we reach adulthood that we were going to do a PhD, but when the time presented itself, we're like, this is an opportunity that really matches what you see yourself doing long-term because it's a long-term journey of, you know, not being, not only being a PhD, but also like a professional within academia. And the fact that you've been talking to us about like different jobs changes and just the roller coaster of emotions that it is like doing a PhD program. I think this year, like the fact that you change your direction of like everything, you know, like you really sat down within the last year since you've gotten, you know, the rejections of last year's admissions um timeline like it was and I told you I'm like once you kind of really set your goals and really are even pickier at what you need and what you're manifesting into the program now you're seeing the results of that like not just apply to apply and I've always you know like I've been kind of the person that's very focused and very direct and specific of what I'm looking for even though I don't know how to name it I just kind of like just imagining envisioning the feeling that you want to have the environment that you look at yourself the kind of relationship building that you want to have in your whole team makes a world of a difference because then you really are getting this opportunity to even have an interview and probably that was, I mean, tell us about the interview. Was it really nerve wracking? Was it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like you connected with the person right away? Yeah. So, um, so shout out to my two good friends who helped me prep. Uh, um, thank you for making time to 
sit with me and go over the questions. So the cool part about this professor is that um, she sent me an email, you know, hey, um, I would like to interview you, blah, blah, blah. And here are the questions. And I, and again, based on her own research, she even told me during the interview that she wanted to make sure that I, as an interviewer, interviewer had the questions ahead of time so I could think about them, right? Um, so she, so that was something she developed based on the research that she conducted on admissions at the graduate school level. And what faculty tend to look for, right? Based on her observations. And um, so, yeah, so what made me not be nervous was that I was prepared. Um, I'm, you know, I sat down with a friend and went over the questions, um, provided some answers. And then my friend gave me feedback. No, you need to strengthen it a little bit, or you need to talk more about this, less about that, or you should start this way. And that was really helpful because I practiced with her, just like a job interview, you um, prepare questions ahead and I mean, answers ahead and you practice, practice, and you look at the website, you look at the professor up, you look at their work, you look, you read some of their work. So I read the introduction of this book in case she asked me a question, because I said I read her book. Um, but it was, it was short and sweet, 30 minutes. She went down the questions and um, yeah, and it gave me time to ask questions at the end. So definitely questions about funding, definitely questions about, you know, what happens over the summer, um, to, with, with research, uh, with how much, you know, she said that, she explained to me that uh, she likes to give her students a break. So over the summer, she gives her students like two weeks off so that they can, you know, focus on themselves, take a break from researching. And yeah, so it gave me more insight like into her work, into what she's looking for. You know, I asked her how many, how many students are you going to be selecting this year? And she said one. So <laughs> that competition is really high. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, I understand why they do these interviews, right? It gives me or the, uh, applicant the opportunity to ask questions as well because it's a two-way street two-way process right they're interviewing you as much as you are interviewing them and seeing if you're a match and I you know I I I tend to thrive in structure so I like that she gives me an outline or gives me questions or um and she even asked me what kind of advisor mentorship mentors do I um do I thrive in or what kind of support do I enjoy receiving? And so I was able to share with her that which matched with how she is. But I knew um, I knew what to say as well because I read her book. And so she explains what, what makes a good advisor. So I kind of use that language as well. And yeah, so it was, um, like I said, uh, 30 minutes. And um, she gave me the opportunity to stay on longer if I needed or had more questions to ask. So. And that just kind of shows you of someone who really is dedicated, not only in research and in theory and practice and everything like that, and also just genuinely like knows, understands like the human need for you to, you know, because you come from a lot of minoritized, like you're a minoritized student yourself. She did her due diligence to make sure that everything was intentional. And especially with the time that she provided with you and, I can't stress enough how many more people need to really filter out a ton of things 
I think this is part, like when I've been helping students work with their SOPs, um, like you need to flush out all the fluff things that make no sense or that aren't directly getting to the point of you understanding even your own purpose and your own vision, your own research. Like, what is it that you want to, you know, take advantage or the most out of your PhD or your anything, right? Like, I don't know. I'm just such a very reflective person in general that, you know, I didn't have my parents ask me like all these questions, but I can see why journaling at such a young age helps so much because then you just can get to the answer quicker and you just know more of yourself. Like you're just more self-aware. And the fact that the, you know, the person would like kind of matches your style, like, and you read her work kind of helps you also like know how to navigate the interview in a, in a way that makes it that you're not the only one being grilled, quote unquote, on questions, but also like for anyone if specifically, if you have an interview in the future, then I think the most important question for me, especially having gone and done the thesis is making sure that you find an advisor that matches your style. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That like kind of makes it or breaks it for you. Um, if the person doesn't ask, then you can ask, like, how do you work with your mentees or your advisees or however they call them? Um, just because that is so huge. And also who else would they recommend that you meet with? Because honestly, you wouldn't be able to rely on just them alone. I think you definitely need a whole team. And if you are going to work with a team in a graduate program, even more so, it's really important for you to like the interview kind of helps the person really understand if you're going to be a good fit for the whole team too. Um, if that's really the emphasis, unless they're the kind of advisor that creates competition, then, you know, you would be constantly in an environment where competition will be the norm, uh, which you can decide for yourself if that's for you too. Um, but I think that's like so good. Thank you so much Anna, for sharing your, your whole journey. It's people don't realize how hard it is to like get to where you're at. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. It's such a long process from the time you open that application to then collecting your documents to then entering that information on the application to attending webinars to getting in contact with faculty, you know. Um, but I'm happy to share the questions in case it helps anyone else uh, prepare or, you know, uh, have these um, saved somewhere for, for when you apply. Um, She said, the questions I'm asking each person I'm interviewing, some of which you began to introduce in your application are, why a PhD, why blink program, and why do you think I would be, I could be a good advisor for you? Under what kind of, um, the second question is, under what kind of supervising and or mentoring conditions do you thrive? Third, how do you research professional and or life experiences um, inform your current intellectual interests? Um, fourth, what will be the biggest challenge for you in a PhD program? Describe an academic challenge you face, how you, how you handled it and what you learned. So those are the, basically the questions she asked me and, um, and shout out to Academic Latina. Um, my friend shared this, uh, link, um, where they posted five questions to ask during your PhD interview to them. So one was, what does summer funding look like? Two, are travel grants available for students? Three, what careers have alumni pursued? Four, how long do you students take to complete the degree? And five, what are the program expectations? And then uh, lastly, uh, grad school femtoring 
um, had an ep created an episode um, about preparing for a grad school interview. I believe it's episode number 47 for anyone who would like to check those out. Yeah, and you know, definitely don't feel afraid to, you know, ask any other questions that you find it specific, especially if, you know, your um, parents or have other obligations, um, if you need to work, you know, what would be, what would it look like to have some time off? You know, what would happen if you need an extra year? Um, let's say if your dissertation gets delayed or whatever the case, like what are the policies or what are some things that, you know, you can advocate for yourself? You can always, you know, defer a year or, you know, for your admission. So you don't have to go right away. You know, all these things, I think it's really important just so you have all your options and you're informed. And um, even for like myself, when I was like looking at PhDs back then, I think the one thing I did appreciate is if you are relocating to a whole new state or a whole new place, you can always ask to see if there's any grad grad school um, housing, like if grad students can be housed in the location or it could be funded um, or, you know, other things that could help you just like be able to relocate and also live in that area or that place. Or if in COVID, like, is everything going to be virtual from here on out? Um, even like some students have decided to um, see if their master's counts towards their degree and shorten their time in, P in their PhD. So you don't have to do, take as many courses in the first two years, you know, um, the more and more we like kind of know this <laughs> inside as personal experience, the more we would be able to share out, you know, just these technical things that are, that are super life-changing, especially as you're, you know, navigating the space. But in terms of me, um, from the last time that we talked, I was so tired of the whole semester working virtually, uh, summer and uh, fall together with the long semester. Um, and it was so great to have like a week, it's like almost two weeks of break of doing really nothing. Um, my sleep schedule was like definitely like thrown out of <laughs> schedule or routine. Um, it was a little bit tough to go back to work and then have like January 6th come in with the capital stuff. Which for me, actually, um, when like the Georgia election results, I was so happy in the morning. I remember like just like January 6th in the morning, super excited and really like kind of anxious about seeing Georgia's results and then ending up seeing that, you know, both Democrats won the seat. Um, and I follow on TikTok, um, Double D Muva, which I'll put the in the show notes what it looks, what her at is on TikTok. And I was just following her. So like the whole insurrection thing and like the whole riot thing wasn't a surprise because they had announced that, you know, a lot of these people, uh, white supremacists were going to be um, at the Capitol already. Um, some of them actually went to the wrong Capitol, which is I find hilarious. They went to Washington State Capitol, not Washington, D.C., you know, and so it just comes to show that, you know, some people didn't get the memo. Um but yeah, like I just felt that I was just, it's wild. It's not surprising, you know, especially when you grow up with a ton of white people, like this would happen because any time that you're in line or interacting with them, they, they are, they don't know how to emotionally regulate. They don't know what it means to have no, you know, they don't know what it means to have to figure out that sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're very, very wrong and that. You know, AOCNN, not just 
privilege, but it's like this whole entitlement, you know, around them and, and this legacy of entitlement to feel like things need to be their way. Or, you know, especially when we're thinking about social justice concepts or things like that, any time people want to give right to any other, you know, minoritized community, it's just like, they feel like they're being oppressed, which is, you know, what, wh whoever has been in this field knows like this would have happened anyway, because you deal with them in the classroom, you deal with them in advising appointments, you deal with them in every place. And, you know, it's sad that they're so old. <laughs> it's just acting like this. It's just so, so wild. And so it took away a lot of like the, the Georgia election results, which I was like super mad because I'm like, you can't even have like that one day or that one celebration at all because, you know, they want to take center stage of the whole conversation. And the fact that a lot of them are the FBI tried to find them and couldn't find them. I'm like, you've been targeting black activists for the longest time. And yet you're asking on Twitter for information about these people I'm like, how, you know? So a lot of these things, I'm like, you know, like it's it's bound to happen. And, and today's like we were recording on the inauguration day. It wasn't very eventful at all. I was just like, oh, pues, you know, and just I follow Erica Hart a lot and Ebony, you know, and they've been mentioning like the complacency had already started back in November, you know, once you know, Biden was, you know, called to be the next president and Kamala and everything. And it's just like, that's true. I mean, a, a, from, from not only the amount of money that we have gotten or the, the relief packages that they're planning to, you know, put together in the next couple of weeks, um, it's just like very little, so little compared to everything that we have. And I, in, I was talking to my partner and I was like, I don't think there's so many people in poverty. There's so many deaths happening because of the lack of leadership and all these like structural system issues that we have. Um, creo que tienen más vergüenza de que los otros países han visto like the rollout of the U.S. That now it's like white people like, ay, el que dirán. You know, we have to like clean this thing up so we don't look like a trashy place, you know, that we are because you have nothing, you really have nothing. And it's, it's wild to see that someone on, on TikTok on, in, George, um, in Germany was talking that AOC is not even the leftist. She's more moderate in their world because in their country, they already have healthcare. Like healthcare is not an issue, you know? There's like all these issues that we say, like we are striving to, you know, have as a right, they already have. So like what's left is even more left. And so it's just wild to like, think about the other position, especially for people who are listening to us from other countries, y'all are like, what the heck is happening? And it really is not like the US is really not what people think it is. Um, especially watching 90 Day Fiance. That's the one thing I did during winter break was watching, been watching 90 Day Fiance. And that show is wild. Like there's no relationship in there that is healthy at all. Like just these mostly white men in the first few like uh, seasons going out of their way to go to these websites specifically to target this one country or this one ethnicity or this one race to go find their wives and then say that the U.S. wives 
or like people in the US, especially women, just aren't like they don't want feminists and they don't want um, they want people that are more submissive. They want old tradition values, all these like dog whistles about all these things. Y después luego se creen las víctimas cuando ya llegan and the, and, and the fiancés turn their whole world upside down because the expectation is so different. And like how many people in the in the reunions, they are like saying like, everybody thinks that, you know, we should be grateful to them because we moved out of our own country, which was great. And then coming in here, like they can't fathom the fact that, you know, other places in different countries don't have the same. And there's a ton of them that are broke filing for a K-1 visa to like bring their fiancés over. And then they think like, you know, like, I, I don't know what kind of, I'm, pre- I'm assuming that they're getting like the pictures of like all these Hollywood stuff. And then they relocate in like Oklahoma or Kansas. And I'm like, that's a whole different reality than, you know, what they're seeing or projecting that the U.S. actually has a lot more poor people than they have rich. And the very few rich people are very, very few. And some of them don't even live in the U.S. anymore, you know? So, so many thoughts. I don't know. Ariana, what do you, what do you think about 90 Day Fiance? Because you're a fan of it. You've watched it before. I think I just watch it because it's funny to see the predicaments that people get involved in um the couples you know like for example the latest season is it tends to be with for this season that's right now it tends to be like mostly uh Ukrainian women who come to the U.S. right and then there's this one um woman in I think Seattle I think in the outskirts of Seattle Washington and she's living in the middle of nowhere and she complains about everything and she believes in uh I think she's religious and the guy is not and I think it's just for entertainment kind of like background you know like basically mindless um entertainment um but yeah I mean I think what what's interesting is for example like when I think last season there was this guy who went I think four four times to Ukraine to meet the girlfriend that he met online, which he supposedly had paid like a million, had invested a million dollars in like 10 years. And every time that he tried to go, she like didn't show up or didn't, you know, and he kept like making excuses for her. So it's it's just like how ridiculous some of these couples are and or these guys or these men who believe all these things or make excuses for them. And I think it's like their last hope, you know, like they probably can't, wouldn't be able to find or meet someone here because they know how it is culturally here. And these, like this guy is really old. Like he's like almost going to retire and he's chasing like this 26 year old, you know, at that point, you know, she's only doing it for either the money or for coming to the U.S. and then bouncing once she gets her visa or whatever, you know, so she can move on. But it's like, and then they get offended, you yeah. know, I think that that's for me, the most intriguing part is like the, like the cases where it's mostly men who are either poor or really rich or like in the, you, you find every kind of like income bracket level in this show where what I found interesting is that people, I think he was Latino. I'm not sure, but he was from season five, whatever his name, season five or four, but he is trying to marry the Russian, it's a Russian woman who like from the get-go, like 
I just really like her personality was hilarious to me because she's like, yeah, I want your money. Like straight up, like ella le decía exactly why she wanted to marry this guy. But this guy was so insistent and was always saying like throwing money at her, like saying like, yo tengo mucho dinero. I can, you know, give you everything. He wanted a housewife and someone to raise her kids. He like, um, he didn't like feminists. He explicitly said he didn't like feminists and that he wanted, he went to someone from Russia to have old values. Llega la muchacha, she doesn't know how to cook. She doesn't know how to clean. She doesn't do any of that. But then to her point, she never got the bag that she wanted and she didn't get dressed. She didn't get money. She didn't get anything. And then it's like, you say that you don't want a feminist, but then like, look at what this is bringing you because you don't, you're so rejection. You, you're, you're rejecting the fact that you want to treat this person as a human. And this person doesn't treat you back because you don't treat her like that. And so, and then he's broke all the time. He's like, I don't have money. I don't have money. It's like these men saying like, yo quiero que like the women do their own role in this patriarchal society, but I don't, I'm not even going to do my actual role supposedly in this patriarchal society of like providing, you know, si te vas a poner the piggy bank, then at least be the piggy bank and like go at it because that's the only way that they interact with this person is because they give money to this person. Like that's the only interaction that they have or transaction. And then they get mad at the fact that it is just like that. And I'm like, dang, like, Where's the logic in this? This doesn't make any sense. And then they're the ones who are like, get into the most toxic relationships <laughs> ever. Like, siempre dicen que the feminists are the problem, but then they go into like really, really, really toxic relationship. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, I don't know, poetic justice, I guess, or something. But just looking forward to continue watching it little by little, because sometimes they, they, they hurt my brain of how like much... <laughs> like do things because did you see the episode where there was like this one old man old white man who goes back to the philippines specifically in the same town that his ex-wife was and he had like four kids oh damn no yeah so that was an old episode and i was just like that's weird you're like old retired and then you go and like bring a 19 year old to the u.s from the same town of your ex-wife and hoping that she acts like her just because she's filipino from the same town that was weird and he has a kid he has a kid uh, like around her age or younger actually yeah there are a few couples that do end up working out you know como dice, i'm wondering like what the working out is okay that- the one that was a model or that is a model from Latin America, I believe, and se junto con this wealthy white man who owns a vineyard, I believe, has a business of some sort. And I haven't watched that season. <laughs> and they, they move in together. And she's younger. He's like 50. She he He divorced his wife. And she's like in her maybe late 20s and really pretty. Um, and then, but he's really friendly with his ex-wife friendly as in like they're, they're friends. And, and then I guess with COVID, they end up like living together, co-cohabitating, whatever. 
and so so the ex-wife with his with her husband and then this guy with his new wife they're all like living together and he has like two kids wow so i haven't gotten to that season but all the ones that i've seen so far from up to i think season five all of them are so toxic like it's so interesting because then you read like the oh what are the couples doing now you know like the updates and then they're like oh they they married and they have kids now they're doing great and i'm like but they're not if they never resolve the issues from the beginning they don't even talk to one another they don't even actually get to the root cause of some of these issues a lot of these men are you know taking advantage of the fact that some like either went a gente or they're just so naive that they don't know any better or they don't have anybody in their life that can advocate for them like that's not normal like there was this brazilian from this like rural, very rural place in brazil that moved to with this um mormon guy older he was like a preacher and did like missionary work um in brazil and then was able to talk to her because she was pretty and then in the show they show a confederate flag of like because they do like a reunion of like the family has a reunion his family has a reunion and then they have like a confederate flag in one of the like motorcycles when they had like they called themselves like the redneck party or whatever that was a theme I'm like, I don't know. There's like all of these red flags everywhere where I'm like, I don't feel like that was really a healthy relationship. I just feel like it's kind of like our parents, like tienen tan mala stuff, but they're stick together. But I'm like, just because you stayed married doesn't mean that it's a good relationship. Yeah. Kids, you know, it's just strange. Yeah, but it's good entertainment. Now they have, they went on to this new platform where you have to pay for you to view these like additional like insights like i think it's discovery plus so now like instead of having the tell all now it's the barrel where they can actually say bad words and you can actually like ask all these like scoop questions you know um but i i follow i'm such a fan that i follow (laughs) (laughs) on facebook there's this uh group that says 90 day fiance fans and so this girl who is the admin of that group posts all the videos that she can get um she posts them up and it's free so we get to see <laughs> all these episodes You're invested. I, I catch up you know sometimes on sunday nights i can't watch them live so <laughs> that's interesting i just got started in it and um i find it very entertaining how people just like go out out of their way to like date someone international and then they come in and i don't know from being an immigrant i'm like i would have never thought of like a k1 visa to be the thing you know for uh-huh. reality it just kind of blows your mind that this is like the reality of some people yeah and, like their problems and then they're like i i know i understand that they need some time to adjust but they're like mad that they haven't assimilated quickly enough so i was like do you even know what it feels like to like move to a different country and have to adjust and leave your family, everything, you know, be by yourself stuck inside a house while that person goes to work. Right. That's how I kind of felt like my mom lived. Like when she immigrated, she was just like, nothing much. Like the first time she did was from a different state to a different state in Mexico. But that was her like thing is that she married and she didn't have like anyone on her side or that she felt comfortable in the town. 
and she had to rely a lot on like my dad and his family. And then later on in, in the US, that's like a whole different thing. But to do it as an adult with like a K-1 visa, like that is something else. Yeah, I never, I, I think that's where I learned what a K-1 visa was. I don't think I knew what went into it, right? Like to get one and that it would last 90 days. Like they've made a whole show out of this. <laughs> and everyone's fear, like everyone is always accusing them that they just want their visa. Mm-hmm. And, and even when, like, in this season that it's going on, there's this girl dating someone from um, Belize. This So this white woman, I forget if, where she's at, Pennsylvania, Michigan, I forget. And she's dating this guy from Belize. And she threatens him. She's like, she gets upset that he doesn't answer her, her phone calls. And then says, you know what? Well, if you keep this up, I'm not, you're not going to come to the U.S. You're not going to come to America. And he's like, you know what? Keep your America. I don't care. So I'm like, good for you. But then they describe him as rude, as being rude to her. I definitely see the show doing like, siempre están al lado de like the, the U.S. people. Like whoever is in the show, like they definitely take their side, like any film or clip or things like that. Did you ever watch the episode where um, it was the guy from, I forget what country, uh, Tunisia, Tunisia. And then the older white lady. And then she was like, like crying her white woman tears. She's like, he just left me. How dare he leave me with three young girls. And I'm like, but you don't even know his side of the story. It ends up being that she had a credit card fraud that he didn't feel comfortable about. But Uh, also like that, like there's like this cultural norm in other countries where you don't want to expose your fiance or your partner or stuff like that in front of the camera for just that. And then that's what Americans do in these shows is that they, they put it on their side, como like las victimas, siendo that they're not even showing the whole story, like kind of like that. And he didn't want to like discredit her or make her look bad in the show or talk about it because he's like, that's not, that's not my life or my business. And I wouldn't want someone to, I mean, he didn't do that, but it's like, he wouldn't want someone to talk about his private stuff or legal stuff. I don't know what, how, like how to the extent that happened, but everyone described him as cold. Like no one liked him until he came out and said, okay, fine. Like I'm getting all this hate. So let me tell you why. Like this happened because it was a court, like they went to court. And then until he live streamed the court thing. Damn. Died. Damn. Yeah, and no. Then- but yeah, for anyone who wants to see mindless entertainment. <laughs> Whoever wants to write their next dissertation on gender immigration and race class consciousness. There you go. You have like you have a whole show to watch. Exactly. Well, um, Let's get started and uh, introduce you all to another wonderful guest. Her name is Leti Garcia, uh, PhD, <laughs> and she uses pronouns she, her, hers. Um, and Leti recently joined the English department at UC Santa Barbara as a president's postdoctoral fellow following a series of precarious jobs inside academia. Very important um, to note. I wanted to <laughs> Letty received her PhD in drama and theater at UC Irvine in 2018 with an emphasis in critical theory, Latin American studies, and dramaturgy. Dramaturgy. Her research interests focus on the intersection of Mexican and Latinx studies and Shakespeare, 
She's primarily interested in Shakespeare and race, cultural theory and practice, cultural politics and cultural production. Leti grew up in La Frontera in the Imperial Valley and is a proud Mexicana in higher education. So welcome, Leti. Hi, friends. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited. It's my first podcast ever. <laughs> yes. And we um, uh, met through taking the class that we've been talking about in our um, other episodes that we decided, <laughs> um, Ariana and I decided to take this uh, Latinx and immigration class um, that was online. And that's how we met Leti because Leti was making really fire comments in our discussion. And we we're like, hey, let's connect on Twitter. And that's when we we found out that Leti was following us already um, for our <laughs> podcast. Oh my god. So again, we find someone virtually, we've connected, and um somehow we've already like we had very similar things, and I'm glad that. Through this class, we were able to actually meet and still um, connect through the summer. Yeah, that I mean, um, it's okay to go in and out of Spanish. Yes. Yeah. Go um, ahead. That's what I was thinking this morning. I was like, you know, lo único, lo único bueno que salió de esa clase is that I met the two of you and like, all the other girls. <laughs> that. But um, yeah, it's been so nice because I have been a fan of the podcast. Um, so it's nice. It's nice to get to talk to you about things that are important. Yeah, and uh, once listener is now a guest again in our podcast, so that's pretty cool um, to see it happen. I like it. Yeah, um, it was there was an immediate connection right there, and we were like, okay, cool, you're 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 speaking truth right here, uh-huh. <laughs> dropping knowledge bombs, and it was really cool to know that uh, already, you know, had your doctor and you were in this class, and I guess. Um, just for context, what interested you in joining the class? Um, well, right off the bat, lo que me llamó la atención was the topic, right? You know, in my entire academic career up until now, um, so that's like undergrad, master's, and a PhD, I never had the opportunity to take a course on anything related to Latinx immigration, whether it's like creative, um, sort of sociological, anthropological, nada, right? So it's something that I've always been very interested in, right? But definitely know, knew that I didn't have any of the chops to back it up, right? So I've been interested in taking a class on the subject, you know, hoping that like maybe one day I'll be able to teach a class like this, right? Whether it, it's about like Latinx immigration and theater and performance or creativity, lo que sea. Um, so it presented itself as kind of a, a good opportunity to sort of dive in, right? It's like a mini course, but it's like five weeks. Um, so I thought that's what sort of attracted me to the class in the beginning, just to sort of get a lay of the land of, you know, what's going on in these types of classes. How do people teach them, you know, things like that, which is why I signed up. And I think I saw it on Twitter. I saw it in someone's Twitter that I follow. And I saw it on Facebook on one of those Latinx groups yeah or PhDs or people pursuing um PhDs and I and I invited Patricia or I invited a group of people and Patricia was the one that responded and and was you know interested in joining so Leti what are your thoughts so far on the class what um, are the what are the what are the issues you see uh when classes are being promoted or covered as Minor, minoritized communities well it's a really it's like a tough it's a tough situation right it's a tough problematic to navigate through from from like all aspects I think 
one of the issues that sort of really comes to the surface early on with a lot of these classes or classes of this kind is that the class is very much so takes the subject and makes it something sort of romanticized, right, which we've talked about before, or it becomes this very kind of creative outlet, right? And I think at the at, at, when that happens, you completely remove, you know, abject, you, you take away a lot of what's really important about the class or the material, right? And like I said, I think it's hard to have a perfect class on like Latinx immigration, whatever the context is, right? Whether it's like in literature and film and sociology and politics, verdad? Um, I think that's the main issue, right? Is that I think that there are people who are not well trained to teach these classes that are teaching these classes in the way that they know best, right? Which is through this lens of literary analysis, um, cultural critique, things like that, which is fine. That's a position to take, right? But it's not the end all, verdad? So I think that that's sort of the difficulty that arises when people teach these classes when you're in a class like this as a student, ¿verdad? Tienes que saber differentiate between like, you know, what is not necessarily what is truth, but you know, at which point am I treating this as like a non-reality, right? Like a non-political reality that is violent, right? Every single day. Because when you're just reading about it in literature, it becomes very romanticized, very exotic, very like treacherous, you know, all of these kind of adjectives that we could just keep adding, Yeah, and it's also what do you you guys think? Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that um, the way that if even if you were to do critiques or view through a lens of art and theater and you know creativity or whatever, um, I think it's still important that we can still be critical. Like if this was fiction, um, you can still like the person decided and even the author decided to create this world in this way. Like they had a power to change it and, and do a different narrative and and create something different. And as an instructor, you also have the opportunity to pick different films. And I think my issue with this class was the um, when we get to the point that we have to show the history or things like that. And even the books that we pick, I do not care if in the literary world that was the quote unquote first. Hmm. What I care about is like, how can we do this better? You know, what can, what kind of content should be um, giving more platform to the authors that are in the ground or even the authors that have struggled and have lived this in the personal, like in, in the flesh and said, you know, this is my, my personal story. And even children of immigrants where we're starting and we've talked about this even before in our other podcast episodes, like as not only Ariana and I as children of immigrants, but also as immigrants ourselves, like we have romanticized and only put in media these really nice stereotypical ways of how Latinx immigrate and our immigrant stories. Like they're very sensationalized to the point that we forget that there's so much pain and, and that we don't put, um, the responsibility of like, first of all, who was responsible for our removal of our communities, of our home, our, our disconnect, our family separations, our, our pain, because to be honest, like immigrant, like lifestyle and all that stuff, it's all cute and all that, but it, it was through pain. Like you go through so much trauma and pain throughout the whole process that I think 
it wasn't like in, in my own personal life, like it was, it, it still hurts the fact that I did not grow up with my dad around. Like, you know, like it's not cute. Like it's actually really hard and to talk about. Trope. It's not a literary trope tampoco, mm-hmm. right? to then, you know, be used, but that happens. Yeah. And well, I think, I'm sorry. and I think it's important to like, say like when we separate ourselves and even as, you know, people connected to the issue, we buy into that, right? Like we buy into this, let me talk about, you know, I, I cross borders, so, you know, I can cross the stage things, you know, like, it, it's just so like, it, it's, because for most of us, some of us did not cross the border to be aged, like, we have to be honest with ourselves, some of us didn't go through the desert. And some of us did. But I think I can't say I crossed the border, personally for me, because I flew over the border. Like, it, it's, I, I, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't want to... You know. Or what is a border, verdad? Right. And, and what is that, like, in terms of everyone's, of every immigrant's perspective sort of trajectory, verdad? It's, it's different. And I completely agree with you, Patti. I think that, you know, a lot of the problems with some of this material is that it commodifies it in such a generic kind of way, verdad? Todos, todos parecidos, verdad? Right? It becomes mm-hmm. reduced to kind of literary trope or convention, verdad? Um, which is sad, and also, right. like, there's one it's very sad. dimensional way of being an immigrant and experiencing immigrant stuff. Because I'm like, we don't include other stories. We don't include nuances. We don't include inconvenient mm-hmm. truths. You know, like, in, in the fact that if we are then daughters of immigrants and immigrants ourselves, then when we go to academia, it's not cute. It's not a very nice relationship with that we have with our family. It's very challenging. Right. Especially if you are, let's say, if you include being a feminist, being a critique, being the loud one, like being the outspoken, saying things that people don't want to hear, it, it's not a nice experience. No, not at all. And and it's hard, right? I think it's hard, especially in the political re- reality that we're living and have been living for the last few years, you know, with this pendejo of a president. It's, it's so... I think the, like, how can I phrase this? The stakes of a class like this is so much higher, right? And you have to come to the table ready to engage in that violence, right? For what it is, ¿verdad? Not through literary convention, through literary analysis, ¿verdad? Sí se vale eso, but at the same time, you just have to, you have to think beyond that, right? Because I think with these subjects, it goes beyond that, right? Um, And I don't know if you, if you, but either of you saw this, but I, I just popped up on Netflix over the weekend, this new documentary series. What's it called? Immigration Nation. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. I just watched the little like trailer commercial thing, but I was like, oh, like why? Like when did this now it's like more trauma porn? ¿verdad? Like now seeing it unfold like in a visual kind of reality. ¿verdad? Yeah. And then on top of that, like the books that we've been reading, like some of it, I don't see the connection to immigration. Um, to the contemporary, yeah. like, even contemporary or even historic immigration, like, nada de eso. Um, I mean, I am an ethnic studies, um, like, graduate. And so the way that we talked about a lot of these things was very much in the personal. Like, sí. because most of us were immigrants and we we discussed, like, how, what it's what it's been like to to experience this now as students. Um, and now we understood a lot more the connections within our family, like, why certain family members act certain ways or what decisions were made like it made a lot more sense and and the healing process of that takes a long time um and even then like we're still trying to gain the tools to be able to connect with our families to even have those 
you know, discussions that are, that are hard and that are difficult. And I just didn't like that the context that we were discussing was very much white savior thing. Like I pobrecitos, you know, I like these children, like migrant children. And then we were discussing like, how are people profiting off of these things that and it's are a specific not, what person, right? And it's a, a specific type of person. And it's a, and it's a, a specific kind of um, academic that ends up, you know, using these children or using these situ- situations, being opportunistas, and then build their own career out of this while we're being discussing. And even there's one of our classmates has been saying um, they're much older um, age wise. And so they were saying that um, they, they has, it's been the same issue over and over again, that, you know, the authors of color have not been able to, you know, get, get published all the way. So, and I'm like, aparte de que todo este, this issue, then, then we should have explored alternative ways of, creative outlets that these communities have actually done to publish. Like I was connecting them to Twitter. I'm like, if we want to talk about Central American issues, there are, you know, platforms where people have been doing it. They're just not the Mm -hmm. traditional book. Exactly. And, and I think that's such a great point to bring up because, you know, I think when it comes to this type of subject or this type of class, you kind of have to think outside the box of academia. ¿Verdad? Porque Mm -hmm. what, like neither one of those like goes together. So thinking about like, what is, what is the best form of access, right? Is it, you have to go down the non-traditional, ¿verdad? No nomás puedes elegir, you know, like what has been published, what is the first, what is the most popular, right? Because while, like, you know, we, we read Valeria Luzueli, Luiselli, sorry, and she's so um, privileged in her kind of upbringing and all of this and the, her ability to be able to talk about the, the themes that she writes about, ¿verdad? To talk and write about it is comes from a position of privilege, right, and authority and agency, ¿verdad? Que no, that the immigrant doesn't have access to, mm-hmm. right? Some of them do, right, and those narratives do exist, but thinking about the ways in which, where are they located? How do you find them, ¿verdad? And even if it's not printed in a book that a publisher put out, like, it's still, like, si cuenta, right? Like, to, to think about that. And that's why I think I really hated that Dreaming America collection, um because it's so um it just feels very forced to me like the writing all of it is is too it's too forced and it's too to me it seems like trauma porn in a way right like let me and I I hate this and we can talk about this later but like when we have to write like diversity statements it's like (laughs) please help me you know give me money give me the scholarship like, like, you have to really kind of excavate your own trauma and pain to put yourself out there for people to see you. And I'm yeah. just like, why? And also, right? like, begging like, for something that it should be already offered to you because we've benefited from your exploitation. You know, like, that's that's the institutions should be looking at it in that way, not in the sense of, let me hear how great I am and how, you know, white savior I'm going to feel like in, in my charity, you know, this, this great, huge opportunity that is artificial because they, they wouldn't need to be all this, you know, competition with all these scholarships and all these scholars, because I'm like, if your intent is to uh, amplify the access of these students, you should already provide them and ready and not give them more labor to provide for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's so complex, right? But I think it is important to sort of address these issues, right? And I think even, 
you know, we talked about this, I think, in one of our very first classes, just the, the lack of these classes is, is one of the problems to begin with, right? Look at all of us taking this class online, but like why, you know, I am a product of the UC system. I work for the UC system. I love the University of California. Um, and, you know, those classes weren't available to me as a graduate student, but that maybe as an undergrad, they would have been, right? I would have had more leeway to go out and take different types of classes. But a graduate student, not so much, but because you're so focused on your area and your discipline um, that I wonder, you know, how are other classes like this being taught, right? Yeah. What are people's approach? How are students learning? Especially like what I think scares me about classes like this is when people who are very uninformed about the topic and want to know go and learn, but learn the wrong things. Exactly. Y luego salen al mundo. And then they're just not really well informed on like what's what, verdad? And so I think that's um, that is so I think scary and detrimental, right? And one of my colleagues, um, she's so fabulous, um, Professor Ambreen Dadaboy. She teaches at the Harvey Mudd Colleges, um, at Harvey Mudd College, which is part of the Pomona Colleges. One of the things that she says is, you know, like what stays, what happens in the class has to leave the class, right? Like you learn in the class and you have to take that knowledge out with you into the world. Um, I'm such a big proponent of that. So that's like, look, I mean, right? That students will take this class and be like, Latinx immigration is just like dreaming America. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like this is the, that experience, verdad? Um, and, you know, I have a lot of faith in my students that they know how to, you know, discern egos, you know, they're they're ready, right? They know to how to be like, no, this is not okay. This is okay. But on Amis Mavez, there are some students that don't really know how to do that, right? Or just take so, in like the experts, quote unquote, of like yeah. you think that this is because it's been the first, supposedly, which is not true because media and the way that we publish is different, just because you just don't know or you're not tapped into that community in the first place. So I think it's important maybe to say, you know, a week or even like a quick 10 minute or whatever discussion about this has traditionally been the people that are the gatekeepers or even the first of these, but that's not true. Let's talk about it. You know, like in our field, these people would be seen as, you know, the experts in this topic, but let's actually explore, you know, these other contexts and these, these texts, this work of art um, to then move forward the conversation because even the artwork that was like everything in there was just so like performative, like and sí. so imperialistic because I'm just sí. like, even the, it just doesn't feel, I mean, there were so many students at the beginning of the class and then one by one, menos, 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 cada menos, semana. Menos, menos. Yeah, y menos, menos, y nadie quiere hablar, right? <laughs> it's hard. And, you know, I'm a professor, so I know what, how hard that is, you know, to put things out there and have nobody like come back. But it's it's not an easy subject to talk about. You must, when there are such, you know, como se dice, like dividing lines of thought, verdad? Where it's like, okay, I didn't see that, read that at all this way, verdad? And that has happened in our class, right? Um, I think especially with Dreaming America where everyone was like, oh, like this is really interesting. And I'm like, is it, or is it just like weird that like these children are being forced to, to sort of participate in this kind of activity, right? So it's tough, and I don't know. I think the classes like this are important, mm-hmm. but I think we really need to think about, like, why are we teaching, right? Like, why are we teaching? What is the goal of the class, 
Right. In terms of like, not only just like student learning outcomes, but like, how are you, you know, how are you doing your part? Right. And the fact that there was like, why are they so few of them? I think they're so few because you get unchecked, right? Like, then if you're the only person doing this, and people are supposed to be grateful for that one opportunity, and just take it as is. And then instead of, you know, because if that class was, you know, allowed in that university, and other people weren't able to come in and like, ha- who have had more experience in this topic, See. then it, c- it would have been an unchecked, you know, content. See. And people would have just taken it like that. Yeah. And it's hard because, you know, you two have such different backgrounds, like from what I have done sort of academically, but it's a beast of a subject. Like you have to go in like sociologically, anthropologically, medically at times. It's not just, um, you can't just be like, oh, I'm only going to do this. Right. Like just like one facet of it. It's, it's so much to deal with and navigate and something that is intentionally obscured. Right. It's difficult to understand for, you know, the everyday person, right. To get into it. Um, so it's tough. I feel like I, probably would do different things in a class like this um but it is it's a difficult one to navigate verdad and i think out of the class that's one of the things that we've mm-hmm. Patty and i have discussed that at least we know what not to do <laughs> it's been a learning experience for us as the students um to see someone try to teach this class and the types of readings that they selected and you know there's some good things, but most of it is, it's, it's bad. <laughs> but like, yeah, you said, it's challenging to take on yeah. the topic. It's challenging to get it right. But then, you know, I'm always really clear with my students from the get go. I'm like, I don't know a lot of things, right? I don't know everything. And I don't know a lot of things, but there are certain things that I think I do know well. ¿verdad? So for me, like every time I teach a class, especially if it's a new class that I'm doing, um, I'm learning too, ¿verdad? with my students and, um, the good thing is that you, the first time you do a class, it's always garbage, right? It's never good the first time around. Um, you vas aprendiendo, like, what works and what doesn't, right? And what you said exactly, Ariana, like, it hits the nail on the head. It's, it's, you know what not to do, right? I think in academia, that's, like, the one life lesson. You always learn, okay, I'm not going to do that again, ¿verdad? Mm-hmm. So hopefully this is a learning experience for some of the people involved, ¿verdad? And, and also it highlights, you know, that, that I guess in my mind, I expected more from a class being taught by Johns Hopkins. I also expected more on the topic. Um, and I don't know if it's because it's my lived experience and I feel like I need to go in deeper versus okay. the surface level of things. And it is challenging when it comes to teaching strangers, right, who ha- don't come necessarily from the same department of English or don't necessarily have the same background and ha- are, okay. have age differences, Claro. And, and, y más porque I think this class is also being, um, uh, como, como, not advertised, but like it's a community class, ¿verdad? So it's supposed to be como, not basic, pero como very introductory, ¿verdad? Mm-hmm. Because it's open to, to everyone, right? Whether you are academic or not, ¿verdad? Which I think is, is a good thing, right? That they're, they're doing these things. But I think it's just, um, I don't know. I I think of it in my own discipline, right? Like, I'm a Shakespearean. um, But, like, I am not interested in teaching, like, 
a class on the book history of Shakespeare because that to me has been done like a million thousand times. And it's interesting for some people, not to me, right? So like, how am I going to personalize this to make the most of it for my students? Um, Especially because it's not every day that, I don't know, like a Mexican person teaches you Shakespeare, right? Right. (laughs) I think that's very rare. So thinking about the ways in which, like, what does that matter? right in the classroom and how can I do that how can I teach my students in a way that's different from when a white person does because I'm not a white person and I never will be so thinking about that I think is really interesting in terms of these classes like who's teaching this class why are you teaching it like what are the stakes and what are you bringing to the table right I think is something worth worth noting um because it's a lot it's a lot to take on and una, what was it five weeks a five week yeah. class yeah but I still think I am just tired of seeing these Latinx immigration classes be taught by people that are just not you know talking about it in a very critical like I am much more connected to the grassroots Latinx um immigration like work and like these things that we're talking about like the fact that we still have a stereotypical image of what it is an latinx immigrant that does not include black latinx immigrants you know like that's something that i'm like you could have had so many opportunities to really be critical and change the narrative of what is the content that we discuss like okay we we know about some family separations but i'm like we can get a lot more powerful in the content that we say and i think like, even when we were discussing, I'm like, oh, pues pobrecita, like, instructor, but I'm like, well, that happens all the time, you know, and we don't, we need to also hold our own um, accountable, too, and say, well, it's because of this and this that you're teaching in this and this way. You need to do better. Um, yeah. Because it, it comes at the cost of who is placed in detention. Like, it has a, it, it, it's a connected issue with how people think we're supposed to address all these like immigration reform or abolition of, you know, DHS and ICE, like it's connected to all of that because everyone is seeing like, oh, let's put a bandaid on shit, you know, and just call it, call it a day. Well, in actuality, it's based on how we interact with the people around us that we just Mm -hmm. can't move forward. Like the fact that not many of us, like who are the instructors, right? Like, yeah, And I even mentioned it in the first class. I'm like, all they has just taught me is that this performative, you know, social justice shit and the fact that like everyone is getting a pass and we're just being well-read racist, but not even well-read. <laughs> like we're reading the wrong books. <laughs> I like that. We should make, when you said that, I said that to my other friend. I was like, we got to make t-shirts. <laughs> well-read racist. <laughs> You get a stamp, you know, like, you know, like <laughs> and it's true, verdad? And like, and to talk about it, like within our own communities, right? Like how racist, um, you know, Latinx, you know, all of all kinds of shades, verdad, are, you know, and their unwillingness to to really go deep, verdad, with these sort of issues. You have it like right in front of you, and you still can't understand it, right? Because you're so, um, people are so unable to to really go deep or even connect the dots like how we're Mm -hmm. we've been discussing this summer about a lot of these black issues and also specific anti-blackness um policies rhetoric behavior like everything i don't know where everyone is tapping it looks like they're just living in silos or something but i'm like we also thinking about white and white passing and non-black instructors 
And why yeah. we even discussed before having this episode recording, I'm like, why do we not say non-Black or non-POC, right? Um, or not non-Black. We said non-POC. Non like, why don't we say that instead of white, right? But I'm mm -hmm. like, in the context, because, you know, I am a, again, non-Black, Hikana, like, it's hard for me to know, like, how we navigate this world as someone who is Black, and the way that a lot of like black content creators have been saying is like, you might as well just attach yourself and call yourself white. Because even if you're white passing, you are read as white. Of course. And so I think that's even important to, you know, identify like whatever we call ourselves, because even POC is a is a term that white people labeled us, you know, and and Hispanic, the same thing, you know, like all these yeah. like identity politics. But we can't even move forward from that because we're like fighting each other about like getting the basic definitions down and moving forward and just saying, if we were to move yeah. in a lens that we center black, the black experience, then we can just move on and like, okay, let's, but it is, yeah. but these instructors, you know, like I've had way, even in ethnic studies, way too many basically white Latinos teaching this shit and they're very sexist. Yeah. And we're still being very homophobic, very transphobic. Like, you know, we're still not moving forward the needle where we even include queer and trans, Black, Latinx migrants and their experience, because we, we don't center what happens to trans Central Americans who are seeking asylum and how they're being misgendered, how they're being sent to, you know, yeah. all this violence and detention centers. Not even violence, like these deaths, right? Violence and deaths, deaths, yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, and, and it is it is that mechanism to keep us in check, right? And to keep us stuck, right? To keep people stuck that I think we, you have, you make a really good point about that, right? Like if we just focused on this, on sort of like the black experience and we would be able to move forward, but how close are we to that, right? Um, it's hard and it's, I think that a lot of headway has been made this summer, right? Unfortunately, because of things that have happened, but on the same time, it's like, like, what are we going to do? All of us in our classrooms, right? Come fall. Um, in our positions in academia, right? And I think even like your podcast is doing such amazing work in terms of that, like bringing these conversations up. Better that because it's so hard to have these conversations with our families, with our friends, right? I have friends, you know, that I grew up with that I can't talk to about a lot of stuff. Porque salimos de pleito, right? And it's like, I'm laughing, but at the same time, I'm just like, wow, like, I know we're friends and we'll always be friends, but we just can't go certain places, right? And I think that that's unfortunate, but then maybe that will change, you know? Um, but it is hard to have these conversations to face sort of these realities, but that in our own communities. Está pesado. Yeah, and, I, and I think it's also like we don't have enough tools or we don't talk about what are the tools that we do need to have those tough conversations. I think it took me like, honestly, 25 years in order to have a sit down with my family and have my dad apologize for his own sexist behavior, his own, his own form of violence that he had in our household. But I think it took me that amount of skills to even have him in that, in that space. Like all of us have that, have each other in that space where we can actually see each other and be honest. And, you know, like we were like, we had a, like a legit heart to heart. And the things that I, that I was telling him, I'm like, you need to sit down and understand that my experience, even if you have all daughters, even if you have a wife, even if you were raised 
predominantly from by your mother, you are still sexist. You're still machista. You know, and that you your actions, I need like I need an apology. And I need you to recognize things, but it doesn't mean that even if you didn't give me that apology, I'm moving on. If you're not catching on, you know, like I'm moving on and I and I need distance, I need boundaries with you because you are violent. Even if it's a nice violent with a smile, like you're still, that's still violent. Yeah. And I think that's not even just skill, what you're talking about. Like that is like a specific type of emotional labor, Mm -hmm. right? That we have to produce and, you know, and and just do, right? Which I think is really hard for our families. You know, I I don't even think I'm there with, there at that point with some of my family members. Um, And it's, it's tough because it's just like, well, you, and what's interesting is like, you know, I was raised in such a way to be like this kind of badass but then at the same time like when I um first got engaged my dad was like Oye, el te va a dejar trabajar. and I was like what are you talking about <laughs> like like it totally blindsided me because I was always raised to like you like do what you want like you can do anything but that and like that threw me for a loop and I'm just like what the fuck I was like of course and my dad's like I was just checking and I was like but what for I was like, dad, te pasas. And he was like, later, he was like, oh, my God. He's like, I don't know why. But he's like, but it's so ingrained. Mm-hmm. Right? And what's weird is that my mom has always worked. <laughs> so I was just like, where is this coming from? Like, mm-hmm. it's it was so weird. But how how deep sort of that runs in our communities, verdad? That people are so unaware of, of it, right? In my dad's case, verdad? Like, because... I get what you mean, like, when you're violent with, like, a smile on your face, right? Like, everyone, and I think mostly men in our communities, have the capacity to do that. But And I'm just like, fucking check yourself, right? Like, get it together. You're a grown-ass person. Yeah, and it's, like, if we're, it's if we're trying to envision a new reality, and yet we can't get our basic things done. Like, that's what I mean, right? Like, we're yeah. saying that I want you independent, but then we make these comments like that. And it shows yeah. up a lot when we're seeing, you know... um, when you have partners where it's, you know, the heteronormative family structure that you think, but even within that structure, you can still move on and do something different and, and have a different dynamic within your own family and the transformational yeah. change. But we're still not ready for that because why are, why are we getting those comments? Yeah. And I think I'm such like, I don't know if the two of you experience this, but I'm like the weirdo in my family because I went to school like, hasta que ya no puedes ir. Like, one of my cousins was always like, ¿Por qué vas a la escuela tanto? Right? Um, and, you know, everyone, I had such a supportive family, todo. But I think for a long time, they were just like, oh, my God, la Leti, like, she is so weird. Like, no más, like, puro estudio, puro estudio, you know? And whereas for other people that I grew up with, I think it, you know, was more important to have a boyfriend at a certain time or lo que sea, ¿verdad? Um, I, I'm definitely, like, kind of the oddball in my family and and what that's like but it's it's funny but at least I think the three of us like we have these tools to do good in our families yeah well you're creating new traditions right like and I think that's the part where I've been really embracing the new term like new traditions instead of what's traditionally been done or non-traditional like I'm like no these are new traditions let's normalize it yeah, I like that. I hadn't thought about that. I'm stealing that. <laughs> I'm like stealing a that. colonizer, the very thing. <laughs> I'm not going to it. Mine. But that's a good point, Letty, because I was telling my sister, who's eight years younger than me the other day, maybe a month ago, that 
um, my parents mention that I've studied a lot, right? And that la vida no es puro estudiar, no oh, es yes. solamente estudiar, right? Puros libros. <laughs> but I was with my sister who didn't go to college. Uh, she's doing a vocational degree or certificate. And I was like, but if I hadn't studied, they would have told me, ponte a estudiar, haz <laughs> algo con tu vida, right? And I was, I was commenting with her, just like, like with her, her, the message she gets is like, do something, estudia algo. But me, I get the message like, oh, no, la vida no es todo estudiar. You have to think about your future, leaving offspring. And, and it's like, you know what? I'm never going to satisfy you. If I did either one, you would still be, you know, giving me these. What's not enough? Uh, you know, like, it's not enough, Ariana. Like, if you, yeah. you have to be a superwoman, but somehow, you know, like, do this. So I think that that goes along with a lot of, like, these gender roles that we grow up, but, right? And even in academia, he, anywhere, we're just never enough. Yeah. And even as they come across as a joke or maybe they're like supposed to be a light comment, but they're not. There's like a deeper underlying something happening there. See, that we or need to like, um, yeah, or just even thinking like it's I had a ex-boyfriend. Well, he's an ex-boyfriend now, but I had a boyfriend once. He was lame. But <laughs> I remember one time he told me like, I kid you not. And I've never forgotten this. Y nunca se me va a olvidar, where he was just like, you know. Um, he's like, I know you really like to study, but he's like, I don't know why. He was like, because we, like, boys don't really like that. He was like, why do you, he's like, where do you think, like, all of the studying is going to get you? And I remember I just looked at him and, like, inside I was like, inside I was like, you're stupid. <laughs> like, you're just, like, the worst person. And I just played it off. I was like, I just like studying. I was like, like, ¿qué te importa? Right? And I think we broke up, like, two days later because I was like, mm. like, not que ver. But... Like, that is um, so, like, I will never forget that, right? That people, that someone could say to you, like, oh, nine te va querer, or people think that's so weird that you're so, like, learned or whatever. And I'm just yeah. like, what's it to you? Is it affecting you? Right? Like, is it bothering you? And, you know, I think a lot of it in that case was not even celos, but, like, just, like, uh, like emotional manipulation, Right. But I thought that was so weird that that people think it's okay to make those kinds of comments. Well, it's because right? it's easier to manipulate you if you didn't yeah. if you didn't have independence, if you didn't have your own things, and if you if you were a, a well read, you know, um, like if you have like something outside of them, you know, then you can easily leave. Which is interesting because I'm like the more I mean I heard the same things where. It wasn't directly, but they were saying things like indirectly, oh, you're just so difficult. You're like high maintenance. See, And then I'm like, you're high maintenance. Actually, like, I wouldn't want to be with you, you know, or I wouldn't want to be with someone that thought like that. And to manifest into existence, there are people who are, you know, having a vision like this because you exist. If someone like you exists, and there might be other people like you too, because yeah. you can't be the only one. And so that's why yeah. I'm like, that's so odd that out of all the millions and billions of people in this world, there wouldn't be someone like me. That's odd. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about that. Um, but it does more, like at the end of the day, and this is like cheesy, but it's like more good than harm, right? Like it is important that I have gone to school for so long that I have a PhD, right? Because, I mean, how many of you out of the many of you, the two of you, I had 
you know, professors in undergrad that were like Latinas. Right. I think I had one. And that was it. ¿verdad? And then I had like one um, male Latino teacher. He was like my political science teacher in undergrad. I went to San Diego State. He was amazing. And he was really like Leticia, like tú puedes, like you can do whatever, right? Um, but up until then, like I had all predominantly like white, white and like a couple of like black teachers growing up. Um, but I think it makes a difference to see someone like you in the classroom. Yeah. Or even someone like with your kind of philosophy and your, and your kind of approach, because I think even when we have, you know, um, more Latinas on campuses or something like that, it's like, what kind of person then do you go in? Because there's a lot more, like, are you more complacent or are you there to push the needle? And I think there's mm -hmm. even less of us who are trying to push the needle and be very like an authentic self. And encourage yeah. other people to do the same. And I think the more we are pushing towards, you know, a specific type of person, I think our families do not see that the bigger picture. They're not seeing yeah, the bigger picture. Easy. They're not envisioning. I think, and, and even within our, our jobs or our institutions that we're working for, um, they don't see the big picture either in either of our own vision of what we're trying to do in this work. So I think it's yeah. a lot of people without creativity, without vision. And I was actually talking to my partner before um, and I was like, it's just so such a living hell, like living with people who have no like sense of, you know, this, this vision I have of what I want to do. People just can't get it. And I'm just like, this is so hard to live around people. Okay. So I'm pretty much incompetent. <laughs> um, and super superficial and they don't actually do the heart work that I want to do and connect I'm like is the tipo the engagement that I'm trying to do with these students is something I received and even the fact that a lot of people do not have really amazing femtors and femtors that can guide them through like their higher self like why aren't we all more like this like Yeah. What are people doing? You know, like it's it's too hard. Honestly, it's it's too hard for people to do that. Merla, to 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 open yourself to that kind of mm -hmm. work, Merla, in academia, because academia is a violent, terrible space to be in, Merla. So it's it's too hard to go there on the daily. Merla, it's too too vulnerable, Merla. And it sucks. I mean, I have a love and hate relationship with academia, right? Like some days I love it, some days I hate it. Um, especially as like a Latina, ¿verdad? like in higher ed, it's, it's bizarre ¿verdad? to think about, but I think you, que te valga, right? Pati, just do it, right? <laughs> Those people can be incompetent. They're, they will always be. ¿verdad? Yeah. And I think you that's what I appreciate what you need to do. about you, Leti, is like this, like, just this fire within you that is like, let's do it. And I think, oh, yeah. Um, part of me is like I do have that fire but I, like, I get so like depleted and I was like no puedes in, in. <laughs> and Leti's there like you can't and so from here on out like I'm gonna hear Leti's voice you know like no puedes Pati like you have to keep moving yeah. on yeah you can always text me too because it's it's too um, you can't do that work then right mm -hmm. and like it's taken me a long time to get to this point because I'm totally all about burning everything down all the time right? <laughs> um, yes which which lately I've been getting like a lot more nervous about because I'm just like maybe I should just wait until I get tenure and just like tone it down a bit because I need like I need to get tenure or whatever which I don't even have like a tenure track job yet but thinking about that but I think about that and then I'm like nah I'm fine <laughs> like I'll just keep keep like doing what I'm doing 
but it is it's a lot to handle with academia and you both of you work you know more like the work that you guys do is so important like on campuses but the outside of like what I do in the classroom is kind of like you know it's not even like the main event but it's, it's just like the generic things that happen at an institution but I think what the two of you do is so I don't know, so radical and important. And a lot of our students don't even know that that's available to them. Or that's not even an option. I feel so many staff members just kind of complacent and just stay with like what is there, what Mm -hmm. exists there. And so I think like that's a living hell for me. So even though I say I don't want to, you know, push the needle or sometimes or things like that, I know in the back of my head, I just cannot like, no me puedo callar la boca. Like I will say something, right? But it's just, it takes so much as a staff member like on campus is a very different dynamic than a professor, you know, like there's, it's a, it's a different leverage. And I think if more student affairs professionals or even in academic affairs, if you're a staff member, like there's still, you still have autonomy and onus of like the work that you want to do and you can still push the needle. And if they not like, what kind of lifestyle is that? That's what I put myself. I'm like, what's the alternative? Like staying there, be miserable, my job, like hate. And then that's how I show up to students. That's how I show up to my family. That's how I show up to my partner, like, I can't do that. Like, I can't be toda miserable doing work. All the time. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm already miserable, but I'm like, what's the miserable <laughs> that I, like, I feel proud of? You know, like, yeah. like the burnt out anger, you know, like, that era porque valió la pena. Like, it was worth yeah. for something. As opposed to doing stupid workshops that, like, I hate and that even students don't engage in. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yes, I'm okay. I don't know. You know, I often get asked a lot by, like, people who are thinking of going into academia, like, going into a master's or a PhD program, like, you know, should I do it? Should I not? And my advice is always, like, listen, you got to want to do it a million, thousand, billion, trillion percent, you know, because 90% of the time, it's awful, right? <laughs> and not awful. And not awful in a way that, like, it's not fun, but it's difficult, right? It's difficult and you are sad and you're isolated y todo eso. and like I had really good colleagues and during my PhD during my master's but you really have to want to do it you can't just be like oh I think I'll do a master's like no you have to want to do it because it's it's a beast right especially especially if you're you know a non-white person yeah right because the system is not designed for you so thinking about that is something that I always show up and that's what I'm saying like what I'm trying to say through all of this is that like the work that we do like vale la pena right because we owe it to our students to show up for them and to be you know radical to be supportive to be all of these things verdad um and not just like I mean I think my life would be so sad if I just had to teach like theater history every day I would be like that's like it's fun but oh you know, what does it matter? Like, why should you take this class? ¿Qué vas a aprender? You know? So it's something that I think about and I always kind of, you know, give advice to. So if there's listeners out there that want to go to grad school, you can email me and then I'll say that to you personally. You just have to really want it, you know, because it's really, really hard. Yeah. And also like uh, to think about even in your own statement of purpose, like you can really bullshit that thing and get in. But it's like, I always tell students, how are you going to feel afterwards? Like once you're there, you're going to feel like, huge imposter levels of imposter syndrome because you're not being authentic you're not being real and you still need some time to explore in a lot of the things you still need to you know do some soul searching 
And I think it's also for everyone who's trying to go to grad school that is listening to us, like, what is something that you're going to do different? Because yeah. hay muchos de los mismas cosas, but I'm like, what is, what is the, the, the positive change that you want to include? What are some innovative stuff that you want to do? Um, it doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to go out there, you know, but you do have to, like, you know, bring in that good energy to the space because For sure. it's like, that's, that's the kind of people that students then on think that that's the norm. And I'm like, we don't want to bring more people like that and think that that's no. the norm. <laughs> we need less of those people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Especially in my discipline. I love my discipline, but I'm just like, there's so many of the same, the same white person. ¿verdad? So it's, it's an interesting thing for sure, but we do need more, you know, more different kinds of people in academia. So come one, come all, but you really want to have to do it because it's terrible some of the time. <laughs> so now shifting the conversation, uh, Leti, you have mentioned to us that you are one of three Latinxes that are doing work with an emphasis in Shakespeare. What led you to this interest and what has been your experience of being one of the few Latinas in your field? Yeah. Um, so how did I come to this? So to my research project, well, I have a master's in Shakespeare studies. When I finished undergrad, I definitely knew that I wanted to keep studying like Renaissance and like early modern literature. I always had this like weird obsession with Shakespeare, which is really bizarre because I don't know where that came from. So I um, ended up getting accepted into a master's program in England um, at the Shakespeare Institute through the University of Birmingham. So I went there and I did a very generic master's on like Antony and Cleopatra. Um, but one of the things that I did in my master's was like I started to explore this issue of identity politics and what does it mean to have like um, a bifurcated identity, let's say. And I don't know if either one of you has read Antony and Cleopatra by Shakespeare but it's basically about you know Mark Antony and Cleopatra's relationship but one of the things that was really interesting to me in that play is the way in which Mark Antony who was a Roman person really struggled with this not immigrant identity but with this ambivalence between like well I'm Roman but I really feel this pull to Egypt and like I want to be Egyptian because I love this woman and that is Egyptian so I really started to explore sort of like the cultural like identity capacities of Shakespeare, right? And it was there when I was finishing that, that my really wonderful um, advisor, Professor Ewan Fernie was like, you know, you seem really interested in sort of like identity, right? He's like, I think it would be really good if you, you know, explored Shakespeare and your own identity, right? And I had never thought about that. I was like, oh, that's really interesting because I think up until then I was going to do like a, diff a completely different project. But when he said that to me, I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. I hadn't even thought about that. So I started to think about, you know, like, what would it mean to sort of work on the history of Shakespeare in Mexico, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm Mexican and I did some research and there was not like hardly any work done on it, right? So for me, it became a project and kind of like this labor of love of excavating this very absented legacy, right, of Shakespeare in Latin America, of Shakespeare in Mexico specifically. So that's sort of how I came to that topic and like my research interests. Um, and I work on that now. So I'm, I'm like a shake race scholar. So I work a lot on like Shakespeare and race um, and all of these, these sort of like intersections and things like that. But primarily my research is really interested in sort of like Mexican Shakespeare and what does that entail? What are those types of 
we're not what are those types, but you know, exploring that colonial legacy. Basically, what I do is write mean things about Shakespeare. It's right. a lot of fun. Because um, one of the things that I sort of argue is that like Shakespeare comes to like Mex- completely obliterates that theatrical tradition, right? And it's not just Shakespeare, it's like todo lo europeo, right? And this has to do with like Porfirio Diaz, the Porfiriato, and like this really like massive influx of European influence in Mexico. So I sort of talk about that and a lot of what I work on as well is very much so attuned to like issues of nation formation in Mexico and like um, cultural production in Mexico and why sort of Mexico has sort of the cultural problems that it does, right? And I sort of attack that by way of Shakespeare being like, here's one problem, right? Everybody knows who Shakespeare is, pero nadie sabe quién es Juana, right? O no la lee or, you know, I can get in a taxi and everyone's like, I know Hamlet, yo sé Romeo y Julieta, but they have never read anything by Gabriel García Márquez, right? So thinking about the ways in which those colonial modes of knowledge are reproduced, even in a place as far away as Mexico from England, ¿verdad? That's sort of what I work on. And I have a couple of colleagues who um, know, not a lot of people work on Mexico, um, but a couple of my colleagues work on like sort of like Shakespeare and Latinidad in the U.S., mm. right? Um, and it's kind of um, an up-and-coming field within the discipline of Shakespeare studies, right? There's a lot of work on like Asian Shakespeare's, on like African-American Shakespeare's, cosas así, um, but sort of Latinx Shakespeare's coming up. Woo! <laughs> um, so it's been interesting. It's been really interesting to be a brown woman in like a sea of whiteness, right that is Shakespeare studies which in my opinion is like the widest probably next to classics right is like the widest discipline um that exists and you know some people are really open and receptive to it some people are just like yes es like literally mm-hmm. um but I'm really proud to be sort of like contributing to sort of what I think is really groundbreaking work because when it comes to Shakespeare Literally everything has been done, ¿verdad? So to think about the ways in which Shakespeare is being cultivated in different parts of the world is something that I'm really invested in, ¿verdad? And how different cultures, especially in Mexico, like speak back to empire, because that's sort of like what all of my work is about, you know, it's like how can we speak back to empire and like burn it down is, is sort of what I'm interested in. I'm going to start working on my book in like February, so, a ver cómo me va. Um, and it's been, it's been fun. It's been hard. I have a really good community now. Um, it, I, it started to pick up. We have a, a hashtag. It's called hashtag Shake Race. Um, and it's all the people who work on, like, Shakespearean race. And it's, like, the best community to be a part of. And it's mainly a lot of, you know, different types of people who work on Shakespeare. Um, and I think that... It's because of that community that I'm able to do a lot of the work that I do because I have a massive support system. Um, But when I was a grad student, I didn't really have that community, right? So it's like slowly people find each other, ¿verdad? So that's been really great. But it's, I feel like I'm very blessed to to be able to do what I do um, and, you know, get paid to think about things and share my ideas with students. Um, I love it. I don't know what I would do otherwise. Actually, I do know, but, um, but just to think about that, it's been, it's been challenging, you know, it hasn't been a piece of cake, but I think that people are more receptive 
and respectful of the work, right? Whereas when I think I was first starting out, people would be like, oh, like, what is the value of thinking about Shakespeare in Mexico? And I'm just like, well, what is the value of, like, book history? ¿Verdad? Um, so just to think about that, um, it's it's been cool to kind of be part of something that's up and coming. Yeah. And you're also not, like, just talking about Shakespeare. And I think that's what is amazing that it's just people don't see the connections and I think this yeah. is the wonderful part that you're like through research, you're seeing all, all of these things connect to one another within the, your field in, in drama and theater. Mm-hmm. And that you're right, like all of these things like connect to why we are having media production, why we, how we built race consciousness and even the history of Absolutely. like all these leaders make a huge impact because I think a lot of people don't see like how political leaders make a huge shift of what is the content that we we end up uh, like um, having more access to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I was oh. going to say something else. Sorry. Um, Sorry. I don't remember what I was <laughs> okay. It'll come back. It, to it was profound. Let's just, let's just think <laughs> that. And... <laughs> um, so tell us how you ended up pursuing a master's degree abroad and how did you apply and what was that experience like? Um, that was interesting. I feel like, you know, it was so serendipitous. And <laughs> that's probably the best word I can, I can think of. Um, so I went to San Diego State for undergrad. And when I was finishing up my undergrad degree, one of my mentors was like, hey, like, Leticia, like, you really like this. Like, I think you are a good candidate for graduate school. Because originally, I thought I was just going to be an English teacher, like, go and get my credential y todo esto. I never knew that this was a possibility until one of my mentors told me, ¿verdad? And so I started exploring and looking at programs, and I was like, oh, wow, like, I can specialize in, like, whatever, ¿verdad? Um, so I had applied originally. I originally applied to like a bunch of PhD programs so I could just go straight into a PhD but I didn't get into a single one and I was all sad I was like oh man that sucks and I had applied to a couple of master's programs um which I did get into so I was like okay it's obvious I'm gonna do a master's um but one day I was at my house and I had been to England previously because I did um a semester at Oxford University when I was an undergraduate so when I was at Oxford I had gone to like see like a bunch of Shakespeare plays better that so I was at my parents house and um I pulled a book out of the bookshelf and when I pulled the book out of the bookshelf one of my theater programs fell down on the floor and when it opened it had an advertisement for the Shakespeare Institute like on that page and I had never seen it so I picked up the program and I was like oh that's really interesting like here's and it was like MA Shakespeare studies lo que sea verdad so I googled it and because it was, like, in England, I hadn't missed the deadline for the application. So I was like, oh, I'm going to apply. And I got in, like, I found out, like, a couple months later. And I was stuck between staying at San Diego State for a master's in English um, and going to England. And I had applied to a couple of scholarships for the England one because I was like, how am I going to afford this? ¿Verdad? Um, and then I found out that I got like one of the full scholarships to go to England to do the master. So then that's how I basically went there. But it was so weird the way it happened, because if I, that like program hadn't fallen out, I would have never like seen it. So I, in a way, I feel like that was meant to be and it sounds cheesy, but it really happened. Um, so I moved to England and I was there for about a year and a half because master's programs are one year in England, which most people 
I think most people know about that, but they're like on an accelerated track. Um, so I think, I think it's a good idea to explore programs outside the U.S., but they're also very expensive, right? And most of the time, not a lot of financial aid is given to students that are not. Well, now the EU is a big old disaster, right? But in ese entonces, if you were like a non-EU student, um, not a lot of help was available. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, you know, have support from my parents. Like my parents helped me pay my rent while I was there. Because you're not eligible to work, you know, when you're there on a student visa, like all of those, all of those issues. Um, but because it was only a year, right, versus like three years here, like it was basically... I kind of evened out, right? Like, if I can do this in a year, blah, 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 it'll be fine. So that's basically what I decided to do when I went. I had the best time of my life. I had met some of, like, my best friends. Um, and some really great opportunities came from that. Like, I decided I was going to do a PhD while I was there. I was able to work for the Olympics because the, the London Olympics were there that year. And I was able to work on, like, some really cool Shakespeare plays, Um, but that was a lot of fun. I, I think it was, you know, my life is happy now, but it was definitely like one of the happiest times of my life being there. Cause it's so, it was so, I don't know. It's so weird. It was weird being a Mexican person in England. because there's like no Brown people. I mean, there's a bunch of Brown people because there's like Indian people everywhere, but there's no Brown people like you better and there's no Mexican food around you. That is not good. Right. That's another thing to think about. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I, I don't even know, like it was definitely met some of like my lifelong friends there. Um, but it was so weird. I lived in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is the town where Shakespeare was born and lived. So I lived like in this like little, like see, miras when a postcard de England, it's like Stratford, así bien como picturesque. So I don't think traditionally most people would have that experience, but, um, I was lucky enough to have like this como very idyllic time in England in the at the center of the empire which I always remind myself yeah and what was the difference between the master's deadlines because I think some of our listeners may not be aware of just the master's deadlines typically PhDs December um like the first days of December whatever calendar year happens and then for Mm -hmm. master's it's a lot more you know either fluctuates yeah it fluctuates Mm -hmm. but it's predominantly in the spring um that they're due march but what about abroad so when's the deadline so i think it was on the same on the same kind of timeline i think i had to submit all of my stuff so it was a much later deadline than like normal american master's deadlines but their school year runs so differently so basically schools like terms starts in england like in october Verdad? goes like October through December and then you have time off and then again like February through like March and then you have time off and then you go through the summer o sea. so it's kind of like rolling verdad? Um, it's almost like a year in a year long program that doesn't stop they give you at least in my master's I got a month off in between every term which is amazing um, and something that I really miss about the British sort of academic system is that they really give you the time to do your work not like here in the U.S. where it's like at the end of the semester, write all your papers. Yeah, like the semester ends, you don't miss to do all of your papers, right? So it's like they really give you like the time to, to be an academic. And I think that's one thing that I really learned to appreciate while I was there is that 
because being an academic is so part of that English culture, right? Like, you know, first universities were established there. It's very respected. It's a very, um, como se dice, like, um, te dan el tiempo de explorar, verdad? De pensar que aquí en los Estados Unidos, you don't get that really, right? Um, and it was really hard moving from a master's in England to an American PhD in the UC system because the UC system is on the quarter system, which is so fast. And I think that's the, that's the hard part about academia in general is that you are placed in such a crunch time that we have normalized, like having to, um, dress, like go so fast, todo bien rápido, like burnt out, like, quickly and that you're supposed to be doing multiple things at times and I think that's what I appreciated cuando fui a la escuela in Mexico like I like there's a dedicated time to eat like you're not rushed to go eat Mm -hmm. places there's family time like family and school are one because they're so engaged in, in everything so I think that that is something that I've like learned by like going to school in a different country mm-hmm. is it's very different and that's why a lot of international students when they're coming to the U.S., they have such a hard time adjusting. It is really hard. Um, And I think I struggled that first quarter of my first year, my PhD. I was like, what is going on? Because I started off by going to graduate school in a different country. And I loved that experience. And then coming here was very much like a las carreras, right? I felt like a racehorse just trying to like get through through everything but you know I think it's such a good experience um to um to study abroad if you get the chance right like when the world resumes definitely if you can go somewhere go wherever you are in school everyone has a um a study abroad program like I definitely recommend it whether it's just like for a semester or you just had to do a full program yeah definitely you should do it you know explore the world salte de tu tu vecindad. <laughs> salte, de, salte de las calles, you know, salte to other calles. calles. <laughs> <laughs> or even, um, I think it's it was different because I think some universities, like let's say for undocumented students um, who don't have the, you know, mm-hmm. the possibility of traveling out, completely outside um, the U.S. or even the U.S. territories, um, I think some universities should also participate in the um, study, like not abroad, but out of state where mm-hmm. they can um, study abroad. They, it would have to be outside of like, for example, if you're in Texas, you would have to go to a different universities outside of Texas or um, the possibility of, you know, having partnerships with Puerto Rico or, you know, any of the other U.S. territories just to allow more students to participate in that because I yes. think that was something that I that I found interesting that in some schools have it and some schools don't and so when I asked student abroad office and I'm like oh they don't have that I was like oh well I mean that would be really awesome because even then even U.S. citizens or residents don't have the money to also go completely abroad yeah. or don't have a passport or can't afford to pay for one and or so, the visa or the visa use. right like all that application so it would allow uh, opportunities to go to a different campus, um, even within the U.S., that's still, like, a big a big See, move. Yeah, and I think those um, sort of, like, inter-campus exchanges are so important. You know, one thing that was really unique about my Ph.D. program, and I believe it's the only one in the UC system of its kind, so I was in a Ph.D. in theater 
drama and theater program at UC Irvine, but my program was joint with UC San Diego. So um, I think when you're in coursework, a fuerzas, you have to go back and forth between the campuses. And you know, it's just Irvine, San Diego, but it really is a shift in kind of mood y todo eso, right? So I think um, the UCs definitely do have these programs in place. Like even for undocumented students, like there is something for for everyone to do, right? Um, but I'll see it's, and I shouldn't have said that comment so cavalierly, like if you can, you should go, right? But there are opportunities to to experience um, the world. And even like um, this past semester, one of my students, it ended up, she didn't go, but she still did it online. She was going to do an, an exchange with the American University in Paris and she still did it, right? But it was just all online. It's not the same, but she was like, you know, it was better than nothing. Yeah, or even summer research programs, just because um, even uh, like mm-hmm. as an undergrad, since I was in the McNair program, like Ooh. we couldn't do, you know, study yeah. abroad programs, which is something that I really wanted to do. And so instead of doing that, um, I did a summer research program and I studied at um, UC San, uh, San Diego uh, with a research mentor. And that was still an experience in a different institution at a different campus in a different place. Yeah. And so I'm like, you can still like, even if you can or can't, like based on the programs or financial aid or the things that you that you're involved in or your responsibilities, like uh, seek out opportunities or programs, either the short term or the long term where you can, you know, go to a different campus that will See. allow you the opportunity to learn and connect with a whole different network. Yeah. Yeah. And like, for example, if um, anyone out there is in the UC system, I've been in like two UC HRI groups, which is the University of California Humanities Research Institute. And they're all about like intercampus collaboration. ¿verdad? So I'm currently in one um, with a couple of students at UC Ir- between UC Irvine, Santa Barbara, Riverside, I think one student at UCLA. And it's all about like Latin American performance in the wake of the political but el chiste es que todo el mundo está en different campuses and we're going to put on all of these events. I mean, pre-COVID, they were all going to be at different campuses. Now it'll be online. Pero it really, I like that change in perspective. ¿Verdad? Where you, because you go out of your bubble. ¿Verdad? I spent like a million years at UC Irvine. I love UC Irvine. Go Anteaters. Pero like it feels good to like talk to people outside of my institution. And, you know, I just started at UC Santa Barbara and I feel like it's like, like the first day of like freshman year, I'm like, oh, like new school. <laughs> it's it's funny. All right. And, and to say that even switching different programs, you don't always have to, you know, pay things like a lot of these programs that I was involved in paid for things because I was mm-hmm. a um, low income student or student who applied for financial need. And so I think that was really helpful if finances is a, is a problem or even yeah. the time commitment, because some of these programs do um, tell you like the requirement is to spend at a particular time. And that could be difficult if you are, you know, um, have family uh, responsibilities or, or whatever the case um, is like the, the intent is to give you options and opportunities to engage in some of these things. And also to plan ahead if that is something that you'd want to do, it is yeah. still possible because um, I had a conversation with my family. I'm like, this is the time commitment that I'm going to be sw- doing the switch. Um, it is scary. I don't know what to expect. It's a whole different campus. And also, I've never done a summer research program. So those are all could be very scary. But I think if I hadn't done it, I like that was one of those opportunities where you're saying like you meet like really great people uh, within yeah. your field that changes your your trajectory from there. 
Absolutely. And it's, you know, I think we're in such a unique time right now with COVID, but that get I almost feel like there's many more opportunities available because a lot of things are online, ¿verdad? So that flexibility is, um, it's out there, ¿verdad? So I think that that's, that's interesting. So Leti, you were a recent UC President's Postdoctoral Fellow in English at UC Santa Barbara. Could you share more about the process it took for you to receive this award, uh, position appointment? Um, you had applied for this opportunity before. What did you do up differently the, the, the last time? Oh my God! Yes, I am President Leti. Um, <laughs> that's what one of my friends calls me. That um, oh my God! This postdoc, I am so I still can't believe it. Um, this year that I got it was the third time I applied. So third time's a charm. I'm definitely one of those people like just keep trying until you can't anymore. Verdad? And I think if I remember correctly, with the UC President's postdoc, which is open to everyone, verdad? No, no más. UC graduates, but that anyone anywhere in the country with the PhD can apply. Um, I believe that you have like, like from the year that you graduate, you have like five years to apply. So technically, you have like five chances. ¿verdad? So I would have just kept applying. Um, the application process in comparison to other postdocs um, applications, it's not very long. But I think because it's not very long, that's the difficulty, right? Because literally, like, I think for your research plan, it's like one page. So tienes que decir todo in like one page. And I, if I remember correctly, it's just a research plan, um, your like diversity statement, basically a writing sample, which is pretty standard. Yes, todo, right? And then you have to have like three letters and you have to have... Um, your mentor for the UC quote. So basically, when you apply for the president, you pick a campus. Like, let's say you wanted to do it at UC Irvine, ¿verdad? Let's say, Pati, you wanted to do it. You would have to find someone at UC Irvine that you would want to work with, reach out to them beforehand and be like, hey, I'm interested in applying for the UC president's postdoc. You know, I think you're fabulous. Like, would you be my mentor? Right? Y luego, you have to sort of establish those connects beforehand because part of your application is a letter from that mentor verdad so that's the only kind of thing that's a little bit different verdad um and it can be very nerve-wracking to like cold email someone to be like hi I'm Patti and I like your work will you help me verdad because essentially that's what you're doing um so the first two years that I applied I applied right after I graduated in 2018 I applied at UCLA um in um with a professor um, who had a joint appointment, so in Spanish and in English, ¿verdad? This, prefer- this person, she works on, like, Shakespeare and also, like, Spanish Golden Age stuff. So I thought it was a good fit, ¿verdad? I didn't get it both years, but I know that for both years, I think I was, like, definitely in the running because I didn't get rejected until, like, June or July. Um, so that was that. For this year, I decided to be like, you know what? Okay, I'm just going to rehaul everything. Um, and I decided to switch institutions. I decided to apply at UC Santa Barbara with a different professor who works on something very distinct from what I do, but at the same time um, related. Um, so my new my mentor is um, Professor Bernadette Andrea. She's amazing. Um, she works on early modern women in Islam, right? So she's an early modernist, but very much so interested in Islamic culture during the early modern period and things like that. Um, so I thought that she was uh, 
a really fantastic fit for what I wanted to do, right? Which is sort of like tangential to Shakespeare, but also, you know, she's just awesome. And she is so wonderful and said, yes, I will be your mentor. And I basically redid everything. For those of you who are listening out there, you know, this genre of writing, application writing is so weird, right? It's so awkward right because you really have to put yourself out there on paper and be like I am Nati Garcia I am so fabulous these are all the things that I do if you let me come to your institution these are the amazing things that I will do and I can only do them at your institution for blah 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 Um, and basically what I did is I just rehauled my application I think the mistake I made and maybe it's not a mistake but um, the move I stepped away from conceptualizing a lot of my work through teaching, right? Because this is a research postdoc, right? So that was one thing I really kind of focused on. Y a la misma vez, you know, my first application I did in 2018, it's now 2020. I feel like my first application, I was very much still a graduate student, right? Like in my writing. So I think that's another thing that changed, you know, this most recent time is that I felt more, um, more secure in who I am as an academic, right? And not sort of just as a graduate student. I mean, it's and that shift is weird, right? Because I still have crazy imposter syndrome all the time. But being like a little bit like, okay, I'm definitely, I'm closer to being more of a, I don't know, more of an academic than I was a graduate student, Merda. Um, so I really kind of thought of, I approached the application in that way. And I think it helped only because I felt less um I don't know less encumbered by like my graduate student persona but that where I, I feel like I wasn't sounding so maybe not so sure of myself right I don't think I had a bad application the first two times but I think this third time I was just like like I'm just gonna be super like straightforward and be like this is what I'm gonna do you know instead of being like, please hire me, ¿verdad? which I was the first time around. And, and it's hard to do that, because I did actually write a diversity statement for that. And it's tough to do that, ¿verdad? to be like, you know, um, I have been very lucky in the opportunities afforded to me, but they also haven't been without like, hard work and like sacrifice, you know, so it's, it's always difficult and unpleasant, I think, to sit down and write about those experiences but I am very much so a product of never give up verdad and it even took my fiance like he made me sit down because I was like no lo voy a hacer and he's like yes you are he's like you're gonna apply again and he was like what do you have to lose you know they project you again he's like that's fine you've got like three more years to apply so I was like fine whatever and I did it and then I got it so um maybe we owe some I owe some credit to Michael because <laughs> he was like, siéntate ya la application. And sometimes I think we need that, ¿verdad? Especially when you're just like, I've been rejected twice. That sucks. It sucks to be rejected, right? Especially with something that you are really hoping will work out, ¿verdad? And that is the precarity of academia, ¿verdad? Más, más rejections que nada. Mm-hmm. So it's having good people in your corner to to motivate you, ¿verdad? Um and to to keep your eye on the prize because it's so hard to be like no no quiero hacer esto ya ya me dijeron dos veces que soy loser <laughs> <laughs> or that you're you're not you know you're not a good fit for it for that year and I think a lot yeah. of things can change um, 
I think we, we are so focused on like our own immediate connection to the application where we're at and we're not seeing, you know, the behind the scenes of how it actually works out is a lot of people, you know, shift around in academia and sometimes based on your research or your content, they just might not be ready for it, you know, and, and how yeah. we're saying sometimes it, it takes a new professor who is their own life has changed or their own workload where they are able to now be available for you. And so um, that, that happens a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so, I, I think I'm a big believer in like you end up where you belong, verdad? So I think maybe UCLA wasn't the right fit for me at this point, verdad? I'm much, well, not that I wouldn't have been happy at UCLA, but, you know, I'm happy that Santa Barbara is an institution that has such a large demographic of like Latino students, right? It'll be the first time that I'll be at a school where, most of the students are predominantly like Latinx, you know, like Chicano studies was kind of born there. Verdad? So I think, you know, a lot of things worked out for the right reasons. Right. And that's the part where we have to be very conscious about of the institutions that we're applying to the places, the context, the people there, and that not the first time just because of the name brand or what it's known for maybe the best fit for you, just because you found a much better mentor in the next, the other institution yeah. that you never thought about. Um, yeah. And, and I think being open to those changes, but and I feel like, you know, four years ago, kept trying at UCLA because I'm so like ordered and I'm like, no, tiene que ser la UCLA. I mean, it doesn't hurt that I live like 15 minutes away from UCLA, verdad? Pero a la misma vez, it's like being open to that change, verdad? And being open to, to different experiences, verdad? And that Which the, the really institution helpful. would have been a great, you know, pivot to, to your next journey where um, because it's maybe an institution that's not well known for theater or whatever the mm-hmm. like or whatever your field is. I think it's a great learning opportunity that is just based on how you market it. Right. So in your yeah. in your in your tailoring, your in your applications. It's a different style of writing, how you mentioned, but and also the content in your applications has to change. I think the See. challenge for me um, and especially coming from someone who is not like, I'm not the most, you know, happy writer. Like, I, I don't really like writing. Um, no, I'm not. Nobody does. <laughs> if you do, I don't believe you. <laughs> right. And especially when it comes to having to change and morph so much, you know, especially as a first gen and, and an immigrant, like you're constantly having to adapt to new environments. So having to do something that you're very uncomfortable and you have to be very vulnerable is even worse. So for me, what helped me is know like you have to change the writing style, but it's also it's preparing you too when you're doing research because that's you do the same thing, right? It's it's a muscle that you keep working on, and oh, that yeah. what I hated the most about scholarships, which is very different from a fellowship, it's very different from um, other applications like even your grad school application. Mm-hmm. Your diversity statement is a very different tone and content than you know your statement of purpose or even your research statement. Like it depends on what you're you're applying to and I hated the fact that in scholarships it's all about poor me poor me look at me I I was just like I'm not feeling comfortable showing all my traumas like I still don't even know what they are like even now as an older I find out like oh these are the connections of my traumatic thing that now I can like talk about but but it's so private um and then in in grad school applications or even fellowships it's more of like I'm the hero I'm the center me 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 yo sé todo I can do it all. Yeah. And it could be hard to and shift it. And that is it. hard. Because then I feel like a falsa. I, like, I read that and I'm just like, wow, Leticia Garcia on paper seems awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
pero mm-hmm. it's like you really have to market yourself and and you know at the end of the day I think I I I believe in myself and that like I know that I bring a lot to the table and I'm a good academic um but you have to believe in yourself but you get used to it because when I first started doing all of these applications on the job market oh my god it was terrible verdad but yeah like with more practice and writing is a muscle that you have to keep exercising verdad um you get used to it or you learn the one benefit I think is like I learn how to talk about my work better because I can contextualize it for like the scientist that's reading my application and I think that's one of the challenges of the president postdoc is that the committee is definitely not people in your field, right? Because the committee changes every year. Tu no sabes si, like, all the committee from Santa Barbara, if it was, like, you know, one anthropologist, one, like, professor from the School of Medicine. ¿Verdad? So you have to be able to talk to, like, your abuela, your vecina, like, your teacher about your project and have it make sense. ¿Verdad? Right? You have to really get on that level. And I think that that is a good skill to have. ¿verdad? So if anything, that's the practice that you get. Because you only, you only improve, right? You can't, you can't get worse. ¿verdad? And uh, in all so, the like minoritized students, like that's what we do all the time. So I'm yeah. like, it's a muscle that we do. It's just now in a different context. Now it's talking mm-hmm. to other academics. So if you've been able to explain it to any of your family members, that's why I always encourage, like, encourage your, either your chosen fam- familia or your family already. Like, explain certain things to people that aren't in your field or as passionate. So, oh, yeah. so you understand what you need to filter out or the things that you're being yeah. too specific on, like, actually take that off, you know, because it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't enhance your application. And I think that's one of the things that I really value in myself as an academic, I think the ability to turn it on, but turn it off, right? Because I don't want to be and sound like an academic, like all of the hours of the day, ¿verdad? I want to go to the mall. I want to watch TV, ¿verdad? Um, so I always like joke around saying like, I'm the most unacademic academic you'll meet, you know, because it's just my job, ¿verdad? But it's not, I define my work. My work doesn't define me, ¿verdad? <laughs> so it's thinking about that and and like having those useful skills, but that because it matters, right? And you know, I've been through customs, like when I used to live in England, and they would ask me like, why would you come to school here? Like, why can't you go to school in your own country? Like you guys have good schools. And like having to articulate that, right? Like I've had customs agents ask me to recite a piece of Shakespeare for them. Like, what is that? ¿verdad? So it's like, you just got to be ready to communicate with whoever it is that's going to like interrogate you or ask you something. ¿verdad? So it's it's good it's it takes some practice but there are some good tools out there like you know I don't always agree with the professors in if you know that book but it's helpful to just get your documents going verdad um things like that yeah and um along those lines how would you say your life has changed since you received your doctorate oh <laughs> Um, I'm like, my life has been terrible. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I feel I'm, I, number one, I think the first year was like trauma recovery that I even finished. It's such a traumatic experience and not in like, I don't want to like make light of trauma, but it is a a very harrowing experience to go through. Like it's very isolating at times and there's so much tension and pressure and a lot riding on it right that when you finish you're just kind of like wow I finished I can't even see I don't even know if you can see it but my dissertation's up there I have not read it 
in like a year and a half because give it winter. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'm going to start working on my book soon. But it's weird to have finished because it's so anticlimactic. You work so hard and so long for just like a paper to be signed and be like, oh, okay, ya terminaste, ¿verdad? Um, so that was kind of interesting. But I'm happy I survived, right? I look forward to like what is to come in terms of like my academic career. Um, but I feel um, one thing I was just talking to to my therapist the other day about this is like, you know, I feel like when I was getting ready to finish my imposter syndrome really like ramped up. And I think it was that like split between like, okay, well, I'm getting ready to finish. I'll no longer be a graduate student. Then I'll have to be Dr. Letty. And that fear of having to be like, I don't have the safety net of being a graduate student, ¿verdad? but now if I'm the professor, tengo que saber todo, ¿verdad? I've been working on that because I feel like I didn't, really struggle with that and then as I was getting ready to finish and then when I finished I was like holy shit like ahora tengo que saber todo verdad and recognizing that no I don't right and I can still be in the classroom and if somebody asks me something I can be like I don't know let's think about that verdad I think in the beginning I was really struggling with like having to know everything porque yeah like you know like that that and nobody nobody expected that of myself it was just me verdad so I've been working on that Um, but I think, you know, being a Latina in higher ed is really hard. There's not that many of us. Um, I've got some really great friends. We, we chat about this, but it's something else, but I'm just really glad I survived. With great power comes great responsibility. Exactly. (laughs) But also know that, like, I think that the thing that helps me is just like, know that if a white professor, like they're so incompetent in most things that I'm like if they if you just know a little bit more I think you're doing really well and but also like there are certain aspects of being a professor that you should know and that you know you sh- we should do better and that we you, you should have a responsibility of knowing specific things but if it comes to things that you don't know just say I don't know but I will figure it out with you or I'll, I'll sí. talk to colleagues that's, that's just the biggest thing that I think more people should practice is just like I don't know but Let's look we'll it up. Figure it out. Let's look it up. <laughs> yeah, and I get you because I've been in rooms with certain people, and I'm just like, how does this person have like a tenured job? And that's that's also something I want to say. You know, I've been on the adjunct hustle for the past two years. Merda, I ta- I worked at four different institutions last year. Merda, so like my postdoc is is like it's new. It's very fresh for me. Like apenas like empecé like July first. So you know. It's also that hustle is very demoralizing también when you finish. He like you don't get a job right away, verdad? Like that is the reality. Um, that it's exhausting. I basically have done zero research since I finished because I was adjuncting and worked teaching like full time. Last semester with the move to online with COVID, I was teaching five different classes at four different institutions. So it's not. It's a hustle, verdad? So thinking about that is also really important and the precarity of of non-tenured people, verdad? So like if you're tenured, like do work, like do the work to support your non-tenured colleagues, right? And students because it's, I've seen some things. <laughs> I mean, I think we all have. <laughs> <sighs> so in closing, Letty, what is your what would you say is your teaching philosophy to help make your classes um, more inclusive and representative of your students? Ooh, I did not know this was a job interview. Um, 
I don't know. I feel my teaching philosophy is always asking why and how. Why is it this way? How is it this way? A lot of what I, I bring into the classroom is built on, like I said, burning things down, but at the same, same time questioning why they were there to begin with, right? Like, why do we have a Western canon and why do we have to think about it in the way that we do? I'm always pushing my students to think things that are difficult, right? I think I had an eval this past semester that my student was like, like the, I love the professor, but she just, she's like, I don't want to go that far into things. And I'm like, you have to, right? In my classroom, you have to. And it was, it was a compliment in a way that like, they were like, it, this class goes too hard sometimes. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what we do because you came here to do work, verdad? So I don't want to make my students uncomfortable, but I want them to just think through difficult things, verdad? To question the structures that are in place, verdad? Um, it's something that I really try to bring into my classroom. And, and I want to say with that, um, to tie it back to the class that and, and how we met, um, is being aware of your blind spots. And if you're not aware and you're being challenged by students, also, you know, being open to, and receptive to that information, you know, acknowledging that you don't know everything. Sí. And, and, you know, reaching out for help, you know, support from colleagues, support from the students, you know, you're, like you said, you, you felt like you were expected to know it all, but you don't, that was yeah. just something that you were mm-hmm. expecting, imposing on yourself. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when I teach my Shakespeare class, I always tell my students at the, the, the very first class, like, you know, if you want a traditional Shakespearean class, this is not it because I am mm-hmm. not a traditional Shakespearean, right? Like who I am as a person, like ethnically, um, changes things right and I'm like I can only teach you Shakespeare in the way that I know him to be which is like a violent a violent thing right and some of my students are like what like we never even thought of it that way and I'm like yes right so I'm also a big proponent of being transparent right of experience and what it is that you can and can't bring to the table verdad and also how we Uh, interact with our students where mm -hmm. usually the vocal often outspoken students are always the ones who are seen as the experts or the ones that should be talking and stuff. And even you as a student in the class, like people are looking at you, like, because you sound a particular way or you say things in a particular way. And I'm like, I think we need to rearrange the classroom where I feel more people would feel more comfortable speaking in the classroom. Because even now, like I, when just finishing these transfer workshops, there's very few that are like open to talking because mm-hmm. even community college students in the setting or even in high school, we're not taught to have people know that, yeah, you can connect the dots for yourself and you can make really awesome points. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sad that very few end up feeling comfortable to do that because then you, yeah. you're, you know, minimizing the amount of potential scholars that we could have in the future. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, sometimes my students are like, well, I don't want to sound wrong or dumb. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I sound dumb all the time. You know, tengo PhD. <laughs> and so, and I'm like, I have the authority to speak. And let me tell you, like, you don't, I always tell my students, you don't want a teacher that knows everything. Like, that's boring, verdad? And they're like, oh, I guess you're right, you know. Um, so I think it's good. I'm, I have a lot of hope. I'm an eternal optimist, like Barack Obama. Que todo va a salir bien. Um, in the academy, todo. Um, but there is hard work to do, right? But I think we're ready to do it. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Leti, for, for joining no, us. And, and thank you for Ariana for, you know, providing the opportunity to connect with you too. Because this Ariana, <laughs> she, she's connected me with so many people. It is la social. <laughs> la social networker. I love it. No, I'm so, so excited to be part of this. I feel honored. Que me invitaron. Um, I'm big fans and now hopefully amigas. Of course. Um, yes, texting. <laughs> I know we're like <laughs> I know. Um but yeah, um I wish you luck with your season, the season of the podcast. So we'll be tuning in. Yeah, and how can people connect with you if they are interested in like either um talking about any of the content that we just discussed in our in our episode? Like what is your work? Where can we find your dissertation? Anything of it. Um, you can't find my dissertation anywhere. Um, <laughs> it's in the back show. But, but, yeah, no, when my book comes out, you'll be able to, to see that. I've got a couple of articles in the works, actually. Um, they should be out within the next year, like hopefully by next summer. You know, academic publishing is una eternidad. Um, so there's that. But I've got some blogs that are available. I've recently done some events um, where I've given talks, so you can find them online. Um you can reach me at my email. Um, you can just look me up. Um, Leti Garcia at UC Santa Barbara. Um, I guess, do you guys link info in your podcast episodes? Yeah, you guys can put my email there so I don't have to spell it out for people. Well, thank you so much, Leti. I wish you the best of luck. Oh, and thank you. And keep doing the amazing work and keep, you know, pushing the envelope that you, are, you have been doing because we need more people like you to, to oh. challenge the status quo. Thank you, chicas. Yeah. I'm like, abrazos. <laughs> this whole time. And and uh, for anyone, again, like we will link all the stuff that Leti just mentioned in our um, episode note. And for our last segment, uh, for our BIPOC uh, business shout out, we have Belle Does Nails. Uh, Belle Does Nails is nestled in an independent record shop in the heart of Fresno, California, not just any nails, though. Belle specializes in creating one-of-a-kind gel masterpieces that will leave you the envy of nail enthusiasts the world over. If you're ready to be on the cutting edge of style, fashion, and fun, it's time to get reclawed with Belle. Belle's shop is gender-inclusive, body-positive, and safe space for everyone. Um, the only people who aren't allowed in Belle's shop, people who uh, look to harm others or make others uh, feel bad about themselves. Nails should be fun and make you feel good, and bigotry and hatred aren't cute. So um, because of COVID, they aren't actually taking in in-person um, appointments, but they do have open up a shop where you can buy press on uh, nails if you're missing going to get your nails done this is a really great alternative and they're very cute and and unique and definitely not your average nails um, just check out their page for their next restock as currently they are out of stock uh, we will link all their show no uh, in the show notes their link on how to check out their instagram For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. 
follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.